0: Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire, how are you today? i'm good thanks and it's me i always have strong memories of me and the weather being absolutely amazing and having to revise for exams
1: (laughs) yeah it was the same for me too it was always beautiful and actually in the states you break up at the end of may so i remember sitting in school in the classroom with all the windows open this was back before they had air conditioning it was so hot having to sit exams in the heat and being desperate to be outside but here those poor kids have to stick it out for another month. Do you think it's an acknowledgement that summer in Britain isn't as great as it is in the States?
0: I think May is always amazing and then you just have such optimism for fabulous weather all summer and then the rain starts in June. If I think about how much studying, in quotes, I did on the Meadows as a student (laughs) in May and then uh, in contrast how many days I've stood at Sports
1: Day for my kids in June with an umbrella and full-on waterproofs. I remember the first time I bought a puffer coat in the UK. I was so proud of it. It was like a duvet that went all the way to my ankles, which is saying something, because I'm five foot ten. And I remember one of the mums, the American mum, saying, that's a gorgeous new coat. And I said, yeah, I'm so warm in it. And she said, just don't be disappointed when you're wearing it in June at Sports Day. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't wrong either. (laughs) So this month's theme at Open Book is about choices. And we're hoping that you'll see why that's the theme with this story, but it's about those moments in life where you make a decision or you do something wild or slightly different or don't. And uh, our story is by Amy Moreno. Our poem is by Rob McKenzie. Thanks to Rob for allowing us to read his poem and explore its possible meanings today.
0: Shall we just crack in? Yeah, shall I start today? Yeah, that would be great. Thanks. Going somewhere? What happens when the song ends? The baked beans bubble up the inside of the pot. One jumps out on a suicide mission, letting out a hiss and a stink as it burns in the flame. Angel sniffs. The radio news tells her there's been an accident on London Road. That means mum will be late home again to her and the others. The buses always get backed up one clunking and coughing behind the next, like the wooden beads on a thread that the youngest one still plays with when she thinks no one is looking. Angel gives four hungry chicks, in their seven-storey nest, beans on potato waffles. Ovals, on squares, on circles, on the table. They spill their milk and she soaks it up with a cloth, stained with coffee clouds. Angel eats standing at the kitchen counter. The fifth seat has been broken since the last time her dad came to visit, bringing his crappy car and stale breath and pockets full of crumpled old promises. Mum arrives home and the house at once feels full to the brim, with her grocery bags bumping off the wall, jingling keys and calls for help spilling out. The little ones carry the bags through, like worker ants, so they can side-eye what's inside. Looking for the tell tale shine of sweetie packets. They know better than to take anything out without permission, though. They're used to waiting. Mum huffs into the kitchen and heaves herself onto a chair. She flips off her work shoes with her big toes and cradles her left foot in her lap. I tell you, Angel, that job gets more tiring every day, and I'd swear the road home gets longer. Angel imagines the road unravelling, like a coiled-up leather belt, her mum running along its edge, fraying shopping bag, bouncing off her hip, leaving drumbeat bruises. She's always a step behind, trying to keep up. As mum goes over and over the issues of the day, she presses them flat and rubs them between her palms. Angel feels the room grow smaller and darker. She's a mouse in a shoebox like the one Peter from upstairs trapped last year. He hand-fed it tiny pieces of bacon fat and broken biscuits every day until it bit him. Then he flung it out of the window.
1: That's a terrible vision, isn't it? The idea of hand-feeding something and then flinging it out the window because it bit you
0: especially since they're on the seventh story and it's peter
1: upstairs it's a really interesting start to a story you know the first time i read it i had a lot of time for the mum and i still do but i'm worried about angel
0: yeah how old do we think angel is
1: well she distinguishes herself from the little ones doesn't yeah, she Yeah, she
0: does and she's old enough to heat beans but that doesn't really tell us much
1: maybe 14 or 15 i would say
0: Yeah, I wondered if it's even a little bit younger because she was, you know, seeing Peter hand-feeding the mouse. She's certainly not a grown-up. She's not late teens, I don't think.
1: I don't think, although she seems to have sort of more knowledge than, I don't know, I'm not sure that my sort of 12 or 13-year-old would remember to hand-feed the chicks every single day. She feels like, well, either that or she's grown up before her time, hasn't she?
0: Yeah, I think it feels a bit like that. But yeah, I think you're right, maybe 14, 15
1: I mean, she's knowing enough to listen to the radio and know that her mum's going to be late because there's an accident, which is, I think, possibly beyond my 12 or 13-year-old. But that said, my 12 or 13-year-old hasn't been asked to do very much lately. So maybe, you know, that's different. There's something I noticed this time of reading it again, that sentence about beans on potato waffles, ovals on squares, on circles on the table, which made me wonder if she sees things differently or that kind of intense observation that comes from being trapped somewhere
0: and and from the monotony of you know where you're searching for something different you're searching to notice something to try and break the sort of monotony of what she's doing it's a really strong image wasn't it ovals on squares on circles on the table
1: yeah and i think by then she's talking about her own food not the bird's food right
0: and i just i'm just imagining those little you know baby bird mouths of of her siblings just going we're hungry we're hungry as the way small children do at that
1: sort of five o'clock. They feel like birds, don't they? And then I suppose they're spilling their milk and she's cleaning it up. But again, that idea of stained with coffee clouds, it strikes me as someone who's sort of intensely observing something because they're bored or stuck or fed up of it, trying to create something new out of the...
0: Trying to put themselves beyond the reality.
1: She's obviously mad at her dad because, you know, she's calling his car crappy and saying, a yes, stale... And pockets full of crumpled old promises is something an adult might say but she's obviously disillusioned with him as well
0: yeah and it does make you wonder how the seat got broken when he came to visit
1: but then i'm not sure about the mum you know again on first reading i felt sorry for her and she's obviously working long days and calling her kids in to help her which i have a lot of time for but you know that the children know better than to take anything out without asking there's a
0: bit of menace about that isn't there Especially if they're little kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, mine probably knew better than to eat sweets without asking, but they would certainly have rooted through the shopping to see what was there.
0: I was going to say the same thing. They probably wouldn't have cracked it open, but I could have said, just leave it and I'll sort it in a minute. And that would be ignored.
1: Yeah. I'm sure mine would have rooted through and said just to eye what was there to keep an eye on where it went and where it was hidden a bit beyond that feels like it's about the mum you know which of course she's had a long day and got sore feet and had a long journey home and done the shopping rather than saying what's going on here how is everyone or she's that, that line about goes over, over and over the issues of the day presses them flat,
0: rubs them between her palms that's a really nice image
1: it is but it worries me for angel because i think Yeah, we're all guilty of that, especially, you know, those of us working long hours and looking after children. But something about that makes me think nobody's asked Angel how she is. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It's very stark, isn't it? There's something quite, I think, just going back a little bit to the children unpacking the shopping, just that comment they're used to waiting, sort of really imbued with some sort of menace. Like you, my sympathy for the mum is a lot less the second time round.
1: Well, I want to tell myself that she's just having a bad day, you know, because the truth is you can't be that mum every day who comes in from a long day of work and says, right, everyone, you know, how are Tell me about your day. <laughs> the truth is, Yeah, you hope to do that, you know, three out of four days, put yourself aside, concentrate on the people who need you. But, you know, everybody has days like this for sure. I certainly do where I come in and it's not necessarily all about me, but I might be pretty quiet because of my brain still taking over with other things. But, yeah, there's something about that story that makes me think it's not unusual.
0: No, and I think it is that bit you picked out. Mom goes over and over the issues
1: of the day. That sounds
0: like it's a habitual thing.
1: And the idea that she obviously hasn't got someone else, because that's the kind of thing that I might ring you for. (laughs) Mm. If I had something that was niggling at me, you know, I I might mention it to my children like, oh, there's something happened at work and it was annoying or something happened and it was annoying. But if I had to talk about it again or I felt like I needed to go over it, I'd probably ring a friend. I think there's something about Angel that makes me think that the mum's maybe not as attentive as she could be. You know, that idea that Angel imagines, she's imagining the road unraveling and her mum running along its edge, you know, and that she's got shopping bag bouncing off her hip. And Angel's always trying to keep up. And Angel's job isn't to keep up. Angel's job is to be to live her own life. But I think quite often in circumstances where You you do have a single parent who's working very hard that you don't have that privilege of having much of your own life. I know generations ago, my parents would probably say that they were both the eldest of very large families and... My mum would say she couldn't wait to leave town so she wasn't in charge of four younger siblings anymore. There was never any time to do anything because she was always caring for her siblings. And probably my dad too, but to a lesser extent because he was a boy in Iran, his sister got landed with that. But we have much more of a sense of children having a right to their own lives, I think, than we did certainly generations ago.
0: And I think Angel feels that burden of caring very heavily as well. I mean, that little phrase, Angel, feels the room grow smaller and darker is really effective in giving us that sense of just things closing in and that she feels trapped.
1: Yeah I mean it wouldn't have taken much for Amy to make us think that she didn't mind she could have scooped one of the little ones up and put her put him on her lap and fed him his beans and toast but she chooses to stand at the sink you know because she's apart she's already apart from them you know, almost like a caregiver or a nanny or a babysitter would do. And you don't hear anything else about what she's doing with them. She just calls them hungry chicks. And then that image of Peter hand-feeding something, and then when it bites him, as things do as they get bigger, hello, houses of teenagers, you know, the idea of flinging it out on an eighth story window is scary. Yeah, and so out of control. Rather than just letting it go, I mean, you can't imagine nursing something, feeding it bits of bacon fat, and then choosing to let it die. Even if it had bit you, you know, my cats bite my children all the time. <laughs> I don't fling them out the windows, or at least not to my knowledge, it's possible that they do. Shall we keep reading and see what happens next? Angel should be studying for her exams, but mum keeps talking, chattering on like a broken toy. They will be the last exams for her. She'll sit, tick the boxes, and wipe up some words until she can leave. It's easier to go through with these things than the hassle of refusing. Angel can feel herself being shoved along the discount supermarket conveyor belt towards the till, along with the dented tins and nearly off bread. That's what comes next. For Angel, the exams are not a promised route, lit brightly by street lamps, but more an ending that shrugs its pavements and dries up. She's depending on me to get a job, Bring home mushed-up worms for the chicks, Angel thinks. That heavy, plodding life she's already shouldered for so long crashes in on all sides and closes every door. The living room door is loose on its hinges, and she notices there's a slice of light at the side. It reaches its fingers out through the space. They stretch across the floor and point to the window. But maybe I'll go far further than I can see from up here. I'll go somewhere fast. I won't take the old coughing bus, angel tips up her chin, and rubs her upper arm in the same place where Ali has his twisted bottle tattoo. His arms are strong. His motorbike is fast. And when they drive together, they go without planning a route, no destination. It lets in air between her shoulder blades, When they're gliding like steel, she's nothing to anyone. She's not a daughter, not a big sister, a carer of others, a falling mouse. She just leaves a space where she should be. When she rides, she's between everything, like cool air in the moonlight. Ali cares for his bike. He's named her. He's protective. He holds Angel a little too tight, like a medal he doesn't quite deserve. Angel wraps that up as a gift to herself, as if it were a good sign. Allie's words are few, but Angel tries to cup them in her hands. She closes her eyes to the slippery bits that fall between her fingers and stain her skin. Mum tells Angel everything, presents it to her, all displayed under a magnifying glass, chicken bones to pick at and examine. Mum is proud of this openness. She stacks, boasts on the shelves, Telling colleagues how Angel tells her everything too. She doesn't know about Allie. Allie, with his long hair and solid forearms and fast motorbike and edging in demands. He gave Angel a helmet for her birthday. It's black and silver with a shaded visor. She would never tell anyone, but wearing it, she feels like a film star. It does more than any fancy gown could. She stands taller. Her muscles contract. She keeps the helmet in the bottom of her wardrobe, behind damp folders of schoolwork. Mum's listening to her melancholic CDs in the living room again. She won't move to digital, stuck where she is. Angel can't concentrate in the kitchen. The sentences keep sliding off the page onto the floor and slinking out the doorway. Her bedroom won't be any better. She can hear two of the little ones jumping from one bunk to the other. Someone should tell them to stop. They'll break the slats again. There's no point in trying, really. The tannoy calls her to the checkout again, and a panic prickles across her chest. But then, finally, after that endless evening of the same songs and complaints and tidying on a loop, it'll be different in the flat. It always changes when the rest of them have gone to bed. Everything is tucked in. The space cools down. The dust stops demanding. Her breath suspended. Her mum's soft body slouches, becoming part of a sofa. And then Angel can creep out of the flat again. Leave this nest in the clouds, full of worms and wasted worries. She doesn't want to die this way. Allie has a fast bike. He'll get her out of here. It's her turn to go somewhere.
0: Now I'm worried about Angel, even more worried about Angel. I was worried that she was unhappy, but I don't like the idea of her going on the back of a motorbike, especially if you think she's 14 or 15. She may be a little older if she's doing her last exams.
1: I think we're wrong. I think she's at least 16 or 17. And I can't tell if she's working... In a shop, or if that's just an image that she's got, that she's coming to the end of her sell-by date.
0: Yeah, and maybe there's there's an element of, she doesn't seem to be particularly,
1: um, she she doesn't view these exams as her route, I, I wouldn't say. We remember what it's like to have a m- table full of hungry chicks. You know, the idea of sitting down at the end of that day to get your schoolwork done, just no way, you know. If you've been watching little children all day and then feeding them and then listening to your mum complain about work, she's effectively a caretaker. You know, she's the babysitter, the au pair, the carer. No one's going to want to study at the end of that, I wouldn't think. Unless you view it as your route out. Well, I think of like, you know, when I was very young, my parents both worked very long hours and my dad was in law school. And they always talk about the exhaustion of having small children. My dad had the habit of studying in the morning because he just couldn't you know he would also then wait her at night and then go to sleep and get up at four because at least he was fresh he said he just couldn't at the end of a full day having worked and taken care of us and gone to university do any more so yeah i think you have to be pretty motivated to set your alarm early and study in this scenario did your mom not do a law degree at night my mom went to went to law school when i went to uni it was her emptiness trick so i've always had this feeling like you know in your fifties, you can choose to do something else. Although I think it was pretty hard on her, the amount of studying that's required for law school in your fifties—they were—they were not shy of hard work. My parents, they never were. But I can—I recognize that weariness of like you know, long days feeding, and then the idea of studying at the end of it. I can't imagine when my children were young, having gone back to it you know, actually engaging my brain at nine o'clock at night, no way. Says
0: the woman who
1: did a master's in creative writing when John was two. I did. I got up at six. So maybe it's in my blood. But, I, you know, I worry about Angel. Part of it, I think, is maybe more the the lack of selfness here, you know, and it's every mum's nightmare. We'll get on to Ali and the, every mum's nightmare in a minute. But I say that knowing full well that I haven't succeeded at it all the time with my children but you know that idea of seeing them for who they are rather than bringing yourself into the room and maybe over an extended period you know you kind of require children to make space for themselves or in the way that she feels like she's got to go out and find herself rather than being seen by her mom i certainly think i would have more awareness than the mom here seems to have Partly it depends on how you've been raised, you know, so I'm not sure my parents would have had that awareness, as it were, because they were raised, you know, working hard, long hours as well. But partly, I just wonder if it's a kind of our generation that feels that they're more focused on the wants and needs of children. The other thing is, you know, we're hearing this from Angel's perspective, and the cynic in me says, you know, my children too have said, you don't know anything about me, you know, in a moment of fury or anger. You know, because I think it's in in our genetics that at that around this age, you know, there's Something in us that wants to fly the nest, you know, that wants to strike out on our own and create something of our own. And there is that instinctive feeling of, yes, I'm here in body, but you don't know anything about me as a person. Which of course, as a, as mothers, we have to tell ourselves isn't true. <laughs> but I think in some there's something in us, you know, that requires us to at that age to go out and be our own people and build our own walls, as it were. Which is a terrible to think to think about for those of us who have a house full of teenagers. But so there's part of me that thinks, well, we're of course we're hearing this from angels' perspective and every teenager on the planet at some point feels like they've been hard done by by their parents absolutely yeah it's not fair yeah <laughs> you don't know what i have to do but in this case you know it does sound like there's quite a lot that angel is asked to do so it's a really it's an it's beautifully balanced i think because if it had been in the mum's voice and it had been this story we would have been much harder on her I think although I feel like we've been quite hard on her whereas at least you can temper that by thinking well this is Angel's perspective and of course Angel thinks it's a good idea to go riding with Ali he squeezes her, squeezes her too tight. Mm. I'm, I'm not a fan of Ali. Well there's part of me that really likes Ali for giving her a cracked window to get climb out of you know because otherwise what? Getting a job and bringing her wages to home to help feed her siblings. Not to say that's not worthy and worthwhile but God, you just want her to have a bit of something, right? And obviously school's not doing it for her. I know, but I mean, that
0: bit where she closes her eyes to the slippery bits that fall between her fingers and
1: stain her skin when she's talking about Ali just feels really dark. Yeah, I suppose that's right. And that idea of squeezing her too too hard and, and having more edging in demand is kind of a worry. And then you do wonder about, you know, I think again with sort of force, that like you do wonder about... I assume he's older if he's got a motorbike. What kind of older boy wants to, or man wants to hang out with a younger schoolgirl? You know, and I always wondered that as a schoolgirl, but especially as a parent now, I look back and think, once you get to uni or. Maybe you're not at uni, maybe you're working and you're 20. There's not many 20-year-olds that I know that would want to hang out with a schoolgirl because most people at that age feel they've left that part of their life behind them. You know, I think of my 20 year almost 20-year-old son. There's no way he'd have a second look at a girl who was at school, partly because he'd be like, I've done that, I'm done. So, you know, there were the odd male figures who used to hang around. And at the time I was suspicious. You've left, you know, we're all fed up with this. Why haven't you left this behind? So there is a bit of that that worries me about Ali.
0: And the bit of where Mum boasts that Angel tells her everything, it really paints the Mum in a sort of quite a selfish light in the sense that she equates her telling Angel everything about her life as the two of them having an open relationship and just. Just what you were saying about having teens and the fact that you know now there's things they don't tell you and they don't share.
1: And and that's hard as a parent because you spent, you know, in their cases, 16, 17, 18 years meeting their every most of their needs and their demands and taking care of them. And then suddenly they've got things they won't talk to you about. But actually, you know, as hard as that is especially if they're upset about something, that's the right, you know, it's really hard to stop yourself in that moment, think, okay, you're tearful because you're upset about something and you don't want to talk about it. And actually that's right, but I really want to know, you know, so that's, that's, that's the challenge as a parent. And I suspect Angel gets the sense that her mom wouldn't respect those kind of boundaries really. To say, all right, you make sure you're okay or ring a friend if you need to and I'm here if you need me rather than being like, what do you mean? We tell each other everything. You've got to, I don't get the sense that Angel's mum would be like that. In fact, I don't get the sense that Angel's mum knows she has any life at all. Kind of a worry because her mum must have been a teenager once. I try not to think about that in relation to my teenagers
0: (laughs) i'm sure we want them to have a life of their own right yes but maybe just not the same teenage
1: (laughs) life let our teenagers have a great interesting life just the right side of safety and never know what we got up to at their age (laughs) let's hope they're not listening yeah well i mean i've loved that story and i feel like as as all good stories are there's enough in it for us to not be sure how we feel about Angel or the mom. We're pretty resolute about Ali, I think, together on Ali. We'd love to hear a defense of Ali if any of you out there feel that Ali deserves more of our time and attention. But as mums of teenagers, we're doubtful. But yeah, that was a terrific story. Thank you, Amy. And I think hopefully we'll see the connection between that and the poem. I think we should move to the poem, which is by Rob McKenzie. Thank you, Rob, for letting us read your poem today. Do, Do you want to read it, Claire? Sure, yeah. Blade Runner. Let's do something you'll
0: never tell your friends about, my convenient wife. Read me theology until holiness runs deeper than my sackcloth and cassock. Take me to the back street barber to see about my beard, and then let's split up. It's too late for me to bugger off to the Episcopalians and become a bishop, which is all you ever wanted through the jumble sale years. When asking, what would Hegel do, was your answer to everything. I will save my hairs in this leather wallet labelled Relics of a Saint, ready for the bells and smells of futuristic Edinburgh, cat-calling choirs rattling pails after closing time among dwinged taxis and unfinished tramlines, like a cut of Blade Runner, directed only by CCTV cameras, a confusing place to be religious Wow, lots in there
1: Yeah I love the idea that you know let's do something you'll never tell your friends about which I think is to split up the idea of doing the racy thing is to do the thing that you wouldn't expect necessarily. And, and here, it's also not what you'd expect. You know, you expect him to say, let's go off to a far-flung place or let's run away together or let's do all these things. But actually, it's, you know, to call a spade a spade, I guess. I love that image of taking, getting taken to the backstreet barber to be seen about a beard. Um, and
0: then splitting up. So the beard that's annoyed you all the way through, you finally got fixed, but you still split up anyway.
1: Yeah, and beard is quite often used as that idea of like, you know, the person you're with, but it's not, it's not a true relationship in some ways, or, you know, to convince people that you're a particular kind of person.
0: And that fits well with that convenient wife.
1: And that idea of it's too late for me to become more holy, to become a bishop. Which is all you ever want. It's funny to think of someone's wife wanting them to be more holy rather than be a bit more, not that holiness isn't fun, but a bit more wild, a bit more. And that way of
0: referencing time as the jumble sale years really sort of reinforces that sort of minister's wife imagery and idea, doesn't it? And my connotation with jumble sales is something that always happened in the church hall, you know, as a sort of fundraiser and and quite often overseen by the minister's wife
1: ah okay so that makes a lot so, more
0: sense sort of reference for me is because i think rob is a church of scotland minister not that i'm suggesting that this is a autobiographical poem in any way um but just well he's you know, also a poet so yeah, he is you know also a poet. <laughs> but um the the sort of idea of the sort of young minister and the young minister's wife and arranging the jumble sales in the early years you know um, but not having to do that when he gets to be a bishop
1: and that idea that, you know, somehow saving his hair and his leather wallet as a relics of a saint back from the days when you were, you know, well-behaved. But also when you had to e- evidence,
0: didn't you, to gain sainthood, there were certain things you had to evidence, <laughs> just this image of, you know, he's got to bishop, okay, the next step, <laughs> you know, elevation to saint, better start prepping for that just in case. <laughs>
1: I didn't even see that coming, so that's so funny. And then, you know, I love that jumble at the end, the cat-calling choirs, a mix of that kind of wildness, which you get the sense that he wants, and, (laughs) you know, the austerity of a choir, having spent a lot of time listening to choirs in the last ten years. They're mixing up somehow. And the
0: fact that Edinburgh still has unfinished tramlines in this future. Yeah yeah imagination
1: and the idea that it's a confusing place to be religious is funny although I suspect it you know you wouldn't like to speak for Rob but the idea of being part of a kind of poetic world in Scotland and he very much is both in terms of his own work but also you know in terms of encouraging the work of others which he's just such a great person for You know, is always trumpeting other people's work and publishing their work too now with his beautiful Blue Diode Press which I recommend to everyone Um, and through the work of Magma you know he's really involved with a lot of supporting others and then also on sunday you know preaching from the pulpit which i'm pretty sure he still does because i'm friends with his organist who turns up to who's written for us as well maybe there's a whole group of like writer church going you know church people involved in the church that would be interesting too but it does feel like for me it feels like a confusing mix
0: and also i wonder as well someone who has a faith and and is religious you know projecting forward and, and imagining how that faith will look in the future with so much change and modernity and and in general i think it's fair to say society moving away from the habits the church going and the the habits of the past where the church had a much more central role in many people's lives and just as a minister wondering what the future holds
1: yeah and what your part in that what your role in society in some ways is and i'm not sure What that would look like, I used to often think that when I was sitting at St. Mary's Cathedral, Palmerston Place, because my kids were choristers there and listening to someone preach, I often would spend time thinking, what would it be like to be you? And what would you say? I often think that with, what's the the part on Radio 4 every morning? Thought Um, for the day? Thought for the day, yeah. Yeah, I often think, what if you got asked to do that? What would you think? You know, it's a big responsibility to think, what would you think of to say? You know, where, where would you start? What, what was the thought process that brought you to this? This is the thing to say. And often it wasn't necessarily to do with religion, it was to do with societal concerns. And, you know, that reflected in that line in the middle of the poem,
0: when we have the phrase, what would Hegel do? You would think maybe as a minister's wife, the question would be, what would Jesus do? Or what would God do? But it's not.
1: <laughs> and I think it reflects that confusion, that idea of... Things getting softer or yeah. blurred in some way. Yeah. And then we've got this lovely reference to CCTV, which you would think you couldn't stick in a poem because it's too unpoetic, but in fact, it's perfect. You know, that idea that, you know, we're moving from an all present God watching us to CCTV cameras watching us. You know, we're always being watched, but our sense of who's watching us has changed. Um, and maybe not for the good. You know, we have this, well, many of us have this sense of a, of a God that's generous and good and wants good for us whereas i'm not sure that's the feeling about cctv cameras or our alexas in our house or what are those things called that you ask them questions you can tell i don't have one (laughs) because i think they listen to us as much as they tell us things don't they connecting that with the story i love the idea that the wild thing to do you know isn't so wild really but you know in, in the context of the church it is a wild thing to do it's a wild brave thing to do just as wild and brave as angel is in the story breaking out of what other people expect or want for you and deciding to find your own little voice, which is lovely.
0: I think it was a really good uh, fit for the the story this week, this poem. Yeah,
1: you might have questioned our judgment, a poem called Blade Runner.
0: There is method in the madness.
1: <laughs> yeah, although it's not always apparent, so we don't blame you if you can't see it. I think that's all from us today, is it? I think so, yeah. Um, thank you again to Amy
0: and to Rob for their contributions and giving us such great material to chat about today.
1: Yeah, and thanks for being in our ears this merry month of May. We look forward to being with you again next month.